Listen to the wind. Drifting past your senses is the fuel that fires the imagination. Close your eyes and breathe deeply. Consider the element that floods into your lungs, the very same substance that long ago fanned an ancient spark, ignited by a primeval author, chiseling veiled petroglyphs across a dim cave wall. Carried on a breeze spanning eons, it was the breath that gave rise to dinosaurs, grew papyrus for paper, and dried vibrant oils brushed over canvas. It has since walked on the surface of the moon. It fondly recollects a childhood memory, violently reshapes the landscape of history, and blows away the fog surrounding the unknown. It rushes by in a heartbeat, inhaled at first, exhaled at last. One moment here, the next gone into thin air. Under normal circumstance, autumn of the year holds within its grasp the promise of bountiful harvest, a circumstance resulting in much sought-after prosperity. It often harkens one's thoughts back to a simpler time, bounding across pathways of amber, mahogany and crimson-coloured leaves, while crisp breezes course through loose curls of hair tied up in ribbons and bows. These errant notions prevailed above all else as I, Alistair Fairfax, made my way across the vast rolling hills and valleys of rural Massachusetts. Ribbons and bows notwithstanding, I have, or shall I say, had made this lengthy trek many times before, in days long past, as it were, with my dearest childhood sweetheart, Matilda Escher. That she and I no longer share each other's company is in no small part tragic, at least from my particular point of view. Long ago, enveloped within the perceived safety of innocence and naivety, Matilda and I made promises to each other that we could not possibly hope to keep, leastwise in the cold, harsh light of responsibility and inevitable adulthood. Of course, the two of us grew apart, as young lovers often do, a distance brought on out of necessity and out of the choices that one inevitably makes as the course of life is charted and winds of change fill the sails with dream and ambition. Here now, passing by these places I remember, I became acutely aware of a melancholy ambiance, an aura of foreboding that hung in the looming canopy of trees overhead and twisted among the bramble like a silent serpent, a dismal atmosphere that gave me cause for concern as to the deterioration of this place, once my boyhood refuge. However, against all better judgment, I trudged onward, a deliberate sense of responsibility holding me resolute in my effort to be of some service to my long lost love. You see, it was the result of a desperate communication from dearest Matilda that gave me cause for concern. Not merely concern for her physical well-being, but also a dire sense of urgency, apparent in her words, descriptions of ruination that I can scarce convey to you now. 
Of course, I responded without delay, riding alone on horseback through this now singularly dreary tract of land down a pathway that led to the grounds of the grim and desolate house of Escher. As the shades of eventide drew near, it became apparent that even my gentle-tempered horse was now exhibiting signs of extreme duress, evident in her uneven step and nervous snorting, neighing and nickering. Time and again I nudged her grudgingly onward, until finally the now dreadfully overgrown trail we were following broke clear of the tree line and provided the first unflinching panorama of our ultimate destination. That I should even partially succeed in describing the frightening oddity upon which my gaze was now disbelievingly affixed could not possibly do justice to the horrific vista. The valley below, once a tranquil meadow in the midst of a vast forest, was now devastatingly and irreversibly transformed into a noxious, stagnant bog, a seething, mud-caked plain of long-dead saplings and brown, decaying reeds that rose out of the murky brown goo like a field of imposing needles. Beyond this seemingly impossible landscape was the house. Not a house left standing. No, not standing whatsoever. There, situated dead center in this decaying field of misery, the house of Escher was sinking. Once a stately abode of two stories and a vaulted attic, all that now remained above ground level was the angled roof, gables, and a small section of the second floor, tilted like a floundering galleon in a relentless sea of quagmire. I suppose I should have decided right then and there that all was undeniably lost. Certainly, I conjectured, no living being or beings could continue to occupy this all-but-vanished residency. Still, safe haven notwithstanding, I conjectured that occupancy might as yet remain conceivable in the highest reaches of the floundering residence, that is, if unimaginable desperation were to completely cloud said occupant's delusional senses. Matilda, I shouted, are you there? Matilda, my dear, it's Alistair. Can you hear me? Respectfully submitted, under less than desirable circumstance, Alistair Fairfax, a Victorian-era gentleman and long-ago resident of this, an out-of-the-way place, somewhere deep in the Massachusetts countryside. He has traveled many miles on horseback at the behest of his lost love, Matilda Escher, intent on intervening in an unfortunate set of circumstances. Very soon, Alistair's reality will be turned upside down and his concept of passing time challenged by the lingering specters of a dim past, the lost souls of a startling present, and the unknown shadows that occupy an uncertain future. Alistair Fairfax, about to step across a threshold leading elsewhere, a place where normal laws of space, time, and gravity no longer apply. Relatively speaking, Mr. Fairfax will find that the House of Escher is not the destination after all. On the contrary, 
the journey is only now set to begin, once he has been nudged through an attic window by lingering curiosity and by a cold breath of malignant thin air. As the reverberating echo of my cry returned to me amid the sorrowful wail of autumn wind, I think perhaps I would have been utterly dumbfounded to detect a response forthcoming. What sort of demented madness would drive a person or persons to maintain residence within the floundering recesses of this all but lost estate? Resigned for the moment that my arrival here was for naught, I decided at length to, at the very least, risk closer examination of the scene in an effort to formulate a conclusion herein, a modus operandi that had brought about such an unfortunate circumstance. Gradually, I was able to coax a wary stride from my horse, plodding ahead on an uneven trail leading downward into the valley that was, even now, actively dragging the house of Escher to whatever dark inevitability lies below. Upon reaching the moss-caked bank of the foul quagmire, I discovered a makeshift, rotting wooden causeway that had apparently been haphazardly constructed in an effort to gain access to the house either by the Escher family themselves or by some unnamed curiosity seeker hell-bent on trespass, perhaps in an attempt at rescue or more likely for the purposes of looting and thievery. Surveying the surrounding gloom, I attempted to locate an alternate method of safe passage across the expanse, but alas, seeing no evidence outwardly presenting itself, I once again spurred my trusty mare onward, her hooves clomping loudly across the creaking planks that led to what was left of the house above water. On occasion, a timber would creak and sag beneath our combined weight, enough that I was inclined to hurry progress along with a sharp snap of the reins. Upon reaching the splintered end of the structure a few strides further on, I observed that the last waterlogged plank had been crudely snapped off and was now barely evident, rotting away beneath the rancid surface of the mire. It was quite apparent that the causeway had been constructed some time ago, at least at a point when entry to the house might still have been feasible via porch and doorway. No sign of these amenities now remained, nor any indication of just how long the sinking may have taken to fully unfold. Regardless, the house of Escher was lost, irreversibly, unquestionably lost. Of this fact, there could be no room for doubt, and yet, a singular question remained, inescapable, a quandary so wrought with primal dread that I could scarce consider the dire possibilities. What terrible fate has befallen Matilda and her dear brother? This, above all else, superseded any and all latent concerns for my own safety and seemingly gave rise to a burst of adrenaline-fueled recklessness. Upon dismounting, I immediately set about plotting the required momentum to leap over to the nearest rooftop periphery. Without much more than crude calculation, I jumped, ignoring the very real possibility that a miss most likely meant death by drowning. As luck would have it, my feet struck down atop a dry section of shingles, and I was able to catch hold of a rusted gutter lining the roof edge to steady myself. 
For better or for worse, it now seemed as I was committed to whatever course of action I intended to proceed with, foolhardy though it may be, as if in divine effort to further seal my fate, ominous slate-gray storm clouds churning across the turbulent sky overhead commenced a fall of torrential precipitation, a deluge that left me no alternative but to seek shelter inside the house. Gradually, meticulously choosing each footfall so as not to tumble from a treacherously angled incline, I made my way to the nearest of several rooftop gables, still extending above the waterline. That I should attempt to gain entry via one of these rooftop gables seemed an act of madness in and of itself. Beyond the attic chambers, what kind of horrific vista awaited my reluctant gaze? Oh, dearest God in heaven, I pray, that my boyhood friend Raiden Escher and his twin sister, my lost love, Matilda, had been spared the ruination of this doomed house of Escher. Rain pelted cold and relentless against the exposed flesh of my face and hands, chilled during descent down corridors of blustering wind. As unlikely as it may seem, no damage had yet to be inflicted to the dormer glass, still very much intact, even as the whole of the mammoth structure was sliding broken and listing into the waterlogged muck. The downpour that splattered across the window effectively shrouded any hope of a view inside, though apparent darkness, black as pitch, seemed all that presented itself behind the strange liquid distortion of trickling rainwater. Facing away and bracing my torso along the leading edge of the gable and with my arm outstretched, I hauled back and slammed my elbow into the sash, splintering wood and shattering glass into a nebulous veil of shards, hopefully not propelled into the face of some innocent bystander or occupant therein. Carefully plucking random shards from the mangled window frame to avoid injury to my person, I then focused my gaze on the interior, now rapidly being soaked through by pelting raindrops given passage by my destructive action. Hoisting a leg up, I clambered in through the opening and stepped down on the other side, as luck would have it, across a thickly woven area rug that provided traction to the slippery soles of my riding boots. The dreary gloom of the cloud-covered skies outside offered very little in the way of illumination, and I found that even my squinted surveillance produced little in the way of useful observation. Here, at least, darkness was the order of the moment. Of course, my eyes eventually became accustomed to the concentrated tenebrosity, enough that I was eventually able to discern several of the collective objects within the scope of my immediate vicinity. Collectively draped over by dingy white tarplins stood an imposingly impressive barrister bookcase, ornate china cabinet, and a set of richly upholstered dining chairs stacked one atop the other next to the now broken out window. The cold breeze that I had unintentionally ushered into this attic chamber coursed past the cloth furniture shrouds and stirred each in succession to animated fluttering, the whole of them now bearing a striking resemblance to the notion of long-dead apparitions, ghosts barring my way to further investigation. Shaking off the evanescent reaction that had produced a healthy crop of goose flesh, 
trailing along my neck and arms, I reached out and took hold of the nearest sheet, satisfied that I had not found myself face to face with a denizen from beyond the grave. That is, at least not yet. While these rippling lengths of cloth had succeeded in producing an aura of foreboding, the mounting tension subsided as I resolved that all I was confronting was wholly inanimate, never corruptible in any capacity beyond a forest stand turned household decor. As my heart rate gradually adjusted to my returned sense that I was not in the presence of dire wraiths from the spirit world, I opted to broaden my examination of the chamber and other objects of interest therein. Then I heard the footsteps, small, short strides, approaching from somewhere out of the darkness beyond my field of vision, tiny, almost inaudible rhythmic tapping on the hardwood floorboards, coming closer, slowing in pace as a child-sized human form took shape and stopped next to the barrister bookcase, still indistinguishable in the enveloping darkness. Out of fear, alarm, and minimal forethought, I blurted out, Who goes there? An indeterminate span of time passed with no reply from the figure, frightfully unresponsive as it stood motionless before me. Then, an angelic sing-song voice responded, Excuse me if I'm being overly inquisitive, but why are you puttering around in our attic? The figure took several more steps in my direction and was bathed in ambient light, enough that I was able to discern the presence of a beautiful little girl. Clutching a tattered, plush teddy bear and dressed head to toe in flowing dress, lace gloves and pristine high button shoes, the child carried herself with an air of solemn refinement, her pigtails bouncing daintily as she turned her gaze up to scrutinize my face for signs of my resolve. Is it your intent to plunder the house of Escher, sir? She asked innocently, then glancing at the broken out window, she continued. Clearly, you have gained entry by stealth and treachery. Are you here to bring harm to us all? Shall I now fear for my life? Lowering myself on bended knee to very near the crown of her dark brown hair, I looked at her in earnest and replied, You need not fear, child. I apologize for my destructive method used to gain entry to the house of Escher. Rest assured, I will make restitution for the damages inflicted. However, my dearest little one, are you wholly unaware of the frightening developments unfolding beyond these walls? The house of Escher, your home, is now floundering in the throes of absolute annihilation. I should think by now your very existence must, out of extreme necessity, be restricted to these attic recesses, the last bleak and confined space remaining above the encroaching waterline. As I knelt there conversing with the youngster, an odd realization suddenly struck me. Young lady, I inquired, may I ask you something? The little girl turned her head inquisitively. You may. She responded. What is it you wish to ask me? Several questions, actually, I replied. First of all, and somewhat unnerving to my equilibrium, do you sense an incline in the floorboards beneath our feet? An unusual angle as though you were walking up or down a hill? The child scratched her nose on the sleeve of her velveteen jacket and sniffled, then poked a tiny finger into her chin and squinted her eyes, thinking. She then looked down at her feet and slowly, meticulously, clomped around the creaking wooden timbers. 
After she had completed her examination of the floor, she returned her gaze back to me. I'm afraid not, sir. She answered. I felt a little bump beneath my pinky toe, but that's just from a knot hole in that board down there. I couldn't help but chuckle at the seriousness of her response. <laughs> so wide-eyed and sincere. Interesting, I said. I only ask because of the orientation of the house outside. It is not my intention to alarm you, my dear. Though I feel I would be remiss if I failed to tell you that the house of Escher is leaning precariously, all but submerged below the surface of a bog. The girl's face became as unreadable as the Mona Lisa as she tried to wrap her young mind around the frightening disclosure. Then gradually her brow furrowed and tears started welling up in the corners of her eyes. Oh, my dearest child, I said, trying to console her. Please don't cry. I'm sure there must be some logical explanation. Patting her well-loved teddy bear on top of its threadbare head, I went on, with your help and that of your fine furry companion, we will uncover the underlying cause. The little girl nodded and sniffled again. Can you keep the house of Escher from sinking, sir? I smiled and tasseled her hair. That's a tall order, my dear, I told her. Certainly I will assist you in any capacity that is humanly feasible. With that momentous undertaking in mind, the first order of business would be a proper introduction, I should think. Extending my hand, I introduced myself. My name is Alistair Fairfax, a long-time acquaintance of the Escher family. It has, of course, been many, many years since my last visit here. Thus, the fact that you and I are not already fast friends. The little girl placed her small hand in mine, and I shook it gently. The hint of a slight smile formed, and a pair of adorable dimples presented themselves at the edges of her rosy cheeks. Holding her tattered teddy bear up for me to see, she said, This fine furry bear is Mr. Poe, and my name is Matilda, Matilda Escher. In utter shock and disbelief, I let go of her hand and stumbled backwards into an old rusted tricycle, falling to the floor with a loud thud and subsequent clatter as the toy skidded into a wall, knocking down numerous obstacles in its path. Before I had the wherewithal to right myself, the startled child bolted back in the direction from which she had first appeared and vanished in the gloom, her fading footfalls the only evidence of her presence left behind. I could barely make out the sound of her fleeing exit down a set of creaking stairs, and then finally, nothing. My brain reeled as I sat contemplating her stated identity. My God, I voiced aloud, Matilda, but how? Named after her mother, perhaps? Surely that must be the case, I surmised. Deciding that my reaction was inspired by circumstance and nothing more, I hastily clambered to my feet and bungled into the darkness, calling after the little girl to pause from her flight. Matilda, dearest young one, please, you mustn't run into the lower floors of the house. Surely there exists the very real hazard of drowning. Cursing my lack of forethought to have first located a candelabra or oil lamp before my brazen plunge into the pitch, I staggered blindly for several moments until finally I caught sight of an unusually bright, distant glow down a long set of stairs leading to what must be the second floor. As I cautiously initiated my descent, I was both relieved and completely dumbfounded to discover 
that nowhere within my field of view was there evidence, trace or otherwise of encroaching inundation. On the contrary, I now found myself standing at the brink of a towering expanse, perched along the highest rampart of a winding banister that cascaded down to a vast maze of staircases and corridors, ornate woodwork and mysterious shuttered doorways, too numerous in number to count from my vantage point. That, I should mention, being a very superficial assessment of what I gradually came to realize was nothing less than a literal manifestation of the metaphysical. Interconnected stairways defying both gravity and explanation led up, down, sideways, and to points not measurable by any hint or evidence of a vanishing point. Stairs ascended down to landings, and doors turned at 90-degree angles from the orientation of my comprehensible geometry, that is, the steps and planes that might support my weight, as it should be governed by the laws of gravity. How then, I pondered, might one traverse such an otherworldly mix of tangled reality? The answer to my desperate query came several moments later, as one of the many doorways a few flights down, one of the ones situated at an angle not in line with my own, opened on squeaking hinges, granting passage to the shuffling form of an elderly man who proceeded to step out through the threshold and then pause momentarily to close the door behind him. Then, without so much as a hint of strain against the known forces of planetary motion, the man ascended a flight of stairs to a landing, turned and stepped over and around the cusp of what was essentially a three-dimensional cube, that is, flat planes on all sides, and then plodded slowly down a corridor and out of sight. What, in the name of everything holy? I uttered aloud. And perhaps stranger still, inexplicable phenomenon notwithstanding, this was still plainly the house of Escher, such as I remembered it. The earth-toned textured walls, tile and richly carpeted floors, crystalline chandeliers and elegant maple woodwork throughout it all, and of course the stairways, now potentially infinite, finely varnished and polished to sophisticated grandeur. Yes, this was the house of Escher, fine paintings and tapestries on the walls, displayed with precision, albeit at alternate angles and decorative potted greenery strategically placed throughout the whole of a now radically disjointed interior. And so I stood there, lost in an odd mix of familiarity and confusion, unsure of my next course of action, until gradually, almost subliminally, I became aware of what seemed to be a distant voice I recognized as belonging to the little girl Matilda, my reluctant host I had encountered in the attic. Slightly varied in both pitch and tenure, yet undoubtedly one and the same, the young lady whose namesake had ushered me here from afar was still somewhere nearby, further on into this frighteningly odd realm. Glancing up, I found that the long, outstretched landing upon which I stood led across the length of the house to an ornately vaulted archway, an opening, to my complete astonishment, granting access to a lush meadow of gently swaying tall grass and wildflowers. Far out beyond the foyer, a great distance from the house, stood Matilda, holding the reins of a horse nearly four times her stature. More perfectly composed than the exquisite artwork that surrounded me, the rolling panorama and framed subjects therein were so completely enthralling that it was all I could do to inhibit my pace as I was drawn into the picturesque scene. Cautiously I stepped forward, 
all the while wondering to what alternate dream state this portal might be coaxing me into. Clearly no stagnant bog awaited my exit, and the gateway I was fast approaching was not wholly or even partially submerged. A warm breeze blew in through the opening and gently tasseled my hair, brushing away even the most dire tendrils of overt concern. Outside the arch, a cobblestone pathway meandered out into the acreage, out from under the imposing shadow of the house and into a sunlit field with cobalt blue sky overhead, lightly scattered here and there with wispy gossamer clouds. Inhaling deeply, I paused to fully appreciate the moment, to once again bask in the warm glow of contentment, a sensation I hadn't fully felt for a very, very long time. I even risked closing my eyes out of complete calm, but then quickly opened them again when I thought that the dream would most surely come to inevitable conclusion. Thankfully, it did not. Then again, something had changed, nevertheless. The little girl was no longer quite so little. If I were to hazard a guess, I would now put her age at Decagon, and two, certainly far older than the pint-sized toddler I had encountered mere moments earlier in the musty attic recesses. I continued walking then, slowly pushing my way through the knee-high grass and blanket of flowers until I stood several yards away from Matilda and her horse. I'm sorry I startled you in the attic, I stated pensively. As I have already assured you, I have not come here to bring harm to the house of Escher. My unexpected reaction was a result of learning your name, child. You see, the Escher family, all of you, hold a very dear place in my heart. Your mother and I were, how shall I say, most inseparable when we were not much older than you are now. In fact, my visit here is a direct result of her invitation. When I found that you are also named Matilda, after your dear mother, I was understandably taken aback. The girl, who had been gently patting the horse's smooth mane, turned her head to face me and stated matter-of-factly, Alistair, you're such a silly boy. You know my mother's name isn't Matilda. Her Christian name is Annabel. Annabel? I repeated, surprised. How can this possibly be? Surely there is someone else in your recent lineage that carries with her the same cherished name as you do. The horse whinnied loudly, drawing Matilda's attention away from the inquiry. Over her shoulder she asked, You don't happen to have a sugar cube or two within your coat pocket, do you? As luck would have it, I actually did, kept there for my own trusty mare. I do indeed, I responded, fetching the cubes and handing them to her. Matilda grinned widely and took them from me, feeding them to the horse who gobbled them up eagerly. <laughs> Matilda giggled. My horse was very hungry, she exclaimed. I have been walking him around the meadow for a very, very long time. I feigned a look of surprise and responded, Walking him, not riding him. I see you have a very nice saddle draped behind his withers. Would it not be customary to scramble up and let your fine steed do all the walking? Indeed it would. Matilda responded, Though sadly I have not yet learned to be an accomplished equestrian. Perhaps my twin brother will teach me someday. He is quite an experienced horseman already. A twinge of uneasiness suddenly coursed across the calm of my surroundings. Twin brother, you say? I pondered, scratching my chin. I have not had the privilege of encountering the young lad as yet. What would be his name, Miss Escher? Matilda finished feeding the sugar cubes to her horse and returned her full attention back to me. 
Grinning from ear to ear, she threw her head back and laughed. <laughs> Alistair Fairfax, my dearest friend, what strange malady has suddenly robbed you of your senses? Raiden Escher is his name, of course. She answered. But then you've known that all along now, haven't you? Are the three of us not fast friends? Additionally, she went on, you made reference to the old man in the attic just now. How do you know of him? I had thought him nothing more than a fever dream conjured in a delirium of ailment. For a moment I just stared back at her, dumbfounded. Matilda, my dear, I replied, surely you recognize that I am one and the same. Granted the chamber was shrouded in gloom, but how could you not possibly equate that it was I who startled you, sent you fleeing from me down the attic stairs only moments ago? Matilda looked to be in all earnest quite stunned by the apparent revelation. A mask of fear flashed across her features, the notion that the encounter had been more than an unconscious reverie until she apparently formulated a logical explanation for herself. Scoffing, she managed a nervous smile and replied, Of course you know. We tell each other everything after all, don't we? Still, how could you possibly think it was you in the attic? He was a grown man? You're only four months older than Raiden and I. Completely perplexed, I expressed a singular inquiry. Matilda, how do I appear to you now? The young lady took a brief moment to size me up and then, smiling flirtatiously, responded, Young, handsome. Blushing, Matilda looked down at her shoes and shuffled them in the loose pebbles and grass. Perhaps I love you, Alistair Fairfax. Certainly, I have not fallen for some old man I found stumbling around upstairs. I see you. I've always seen you. When she looked up at me again, there was a twinkle in her beautiful brown eyes. I couldn't fathom who she saw standing before her, returning her gaze. Like the house itself, time seemingly meanders at odd angles, tilted this way and that so that yesterday is just around the corner, walking distance from today, perhaps only a stone's throw from tomorrow. Alistair? Matilda asked, rousing me from my rambling thoughts. Will you teach me to ride? I mean, you're here. I'm here. My horse has had several cubes of sugar and is now well rested. I'm sure I shall be a quick study. Lost in time and in her beautiful sincerity, how could I possibly decline her request? Of course I will, Matilda, my dear. We shall start with a trot, and before the day is through, conclude with a gallop. Clasping my fingers together, I gave her a leg up, boosting her into the saddle, and in that very moment, a precious, timeless moment, we were off to relive a memory, a time long past when I taught my childhood sweetheart to ride her horse. By day's end, young Lady Escher had become quite the established equestrian, picking up on every nuance I saw fit to teach her, and skillfully mastering all that was required to become a consummate horsewoman. Her enthusiasm and wide-eyed wonder were both heartwarming and infectious to behold, before too long managing to sufficiently push the strangeness of earlier circumstances to nothing more than a remnant of an afterthought, as if the whole of the initial encounter with the house had been a trick of the light, or perhaps an aberration conjured by my own sense of disquiet. There was no bog here, now, no indication that the house of Escher was floundering, now or ever. On the contrary, the lavish exterior still reeked of grandeur, 
from opulent entryway to tallest rampart, the whole of it surrounded on all sides with lush plant life and a radiant carpet of wildflowers that stretched out into the distance for as far as the eye could see. It was all quite picture perfect just as I remembered it growing up. Regardless of the hows and the whys, history had somehow managed to repeat itself. The day spent together with Matilda made my heart sore, just as it had once before, long, long ago. Odd, yes, very, very odd. No matter. I was here now, precisely where I needed to be. Indeed, where she needed me to be. As the long shadows of nightfall encroached across our vast, limitless field of dreams, Matilda unexpectedly dismounted, a playful leap down from her saddle, fortuitously landing with a thud on top of me. Unharmed, obviously amused and apparently completely satisfied with herself for landing spot on target, Matilda commenced to giggling uncontrollably as she poked both of her index fingers beneath my armpits, trying to coax a similar hysteria from me. Had she not succeeded in knocking the air out of my lungs, I might have been a trifle more amused. Alistair, my dearest, I should think that you'd be prone to exhibit a modicum of good nature. Surely, a day spent with me in the fresh air and sunshine must have reinvigorated your melancholy spirit. Can my effervescent personality not possibly elicit a broader smile than that pitiful one you're wearing? Effervescent is an absolute understatement, Matilda, I replied. Somewhat more akin to outright giddiness, I should think. All right then, giddiness it is. She exclaimed, continuing to tickle. I am indeed so very happy. You've imparted upon me your skills on horseback. I'm an accomplished rider now, thanks to you. Is that not sufficient cause for giddiness? I suppose it is, Matilda, I responded. That I have brought you such joy is a satisfaction in and of itself. Now then, shall we not call it a day before said giddiness robs us completely of our senses? Fuddy-duddy! Matilda chided as she climbed off me and adjusted her skirt. Then, offering her hand, she grinned flirtatiously down at me and added, Still, a most attractive fuddy-duddy, to be sure. Hopelessly charmed by her flattery and mesmerized by her intoxicating beauty, I took hold of her outstretched hand and let her assist me to my feet. All at once I noticed some kind of deliberate commotion unfolding high up in the loftiest branches of an old oak tree near the corner of the house. A treachery of ravens it was, or perhaps more appropriately, a murder of crows up there squawking and vehemently flapping their wings at odds with one another over some large dark object that one of them held clenched tightly in its beak. As I stood there next to Matilda, brushing myself off, I observed the largest of the birds haul off and peck the other that was hoarding the object, causing the creature to drop whatever it was. Down and down the thing fell, impacting upon several stout branches along the way until finally landing with a soft, muffled thud in a collective pile of fallen leaves that were gathered beneath the outstretched canopy. There, in the shadowy cobalt-blue twilight, was Matilda's teddy bear, Mr. Poe, looking back at me through lifeless black button eyes, his mohair pelt torn and the excelsior stuffing within exposed. I carefully reached down and retrieved the plush toy from where it had come to rest with the intention of returning it to its rightful owner. Matilda, is this not your treasured Mr. Poe? Oddly, she didn't respond. 
I turned only then to realize that I now stood alone. Miss Escher and, indeed, even her horse had vanished without a trace. So, lacking any other immediate course of action, I tucked Mr. Poe under one arm and proceeded back into the familiar recesses of the house. Familiar, did I say? No, not in the least bit, as if the very structure and substance of the building materials possessed a liquid quality to reshape themselves on a whim, the house of Escher was now radically different, stairways tilted at different angles, different doors standing diagonal to my own, the layout drastically altered since having gone outdoors. Now I stood evaluating the wholly new and disorienting floor plan, attempting to plot out a safe way forward. Never mind the metaphysical properties of the house itself. Now, equally baffling, was the undeniable state of the decor, no longer immaculately maintained. Peeling wallpaper, discolored blotches of chipped mold-crusted paint, crumbling plaster ceilings, banister woodwork splintered and scuffed from years. No, decades of sorrowful neglect. Here and there throughout the various aberrant levels were once ornate vases, strategically placed upon alabaster pedestals to lend a touch of nature's ambience to the meandering stairways and echoing corridors. Once full of vibrant life, the vases now contained only the dregs of rotting organic compost, long dead stems, and shriveled blooms of once beautiful bouquets. As if suddenly waking from a fever dream, my thoughts returned to a vision of the capsizing house outside. Focusing my gaze down to the lowest floor, I made certain that I wasn't about to descend into the same relentless pool of goo as was actively consuming the structure from without. There was, as yet, no evidence that the lower expanse of windows or walls had been inwardly breached or even remotely compromised. Carefully placing Mr. Poe against one of the uppermost balusters of the staircase, I slowly, cautiously, made my way down the rotted steps until finally setting foot upon the first of many bizarre landings ahead. Bizarre, I say, in that just over the lip of the handrail was yet another flight of stairs set on a 90-degree angle from my own, and there, slowly making his way along those stairs and facing away from me as he went along, was the same very, very old man I had encountered before. I thought of calling out to him this time, asking him to pause and explain our mutual surroundings, but then held my tongue when I began to wonder to what matter of otherworldly realm I would be casting my voice into, and whether or not my words might be thus interpreted as a supplication to dislodge and unravel the very fabric of reality itself. Instead, I turned my attention away toward the exterior wall and what I immediately recognized as the Escher Conservatory, an extension of wrought iron latticework and glass spanning outward into the grounds and now hopelessly overgrown with all manner of unkempt vines and exotic vegetation, pitcher plants and Venus fly traps, remnants of my friend Raiden's somewhat twisted fascination with carnivorous flora now encroached overhead as I made my way into the tangled menagerie toward what seemed to be flickering candlelight beyond. The pitcher plants, in particular, had grown to enormous size. 
so much so that their bulging, fluid-filled death traps and gaping, moisture-laden malls looked more like nightmare aquatic creatures from a Lovecraft story than overgrown vegetation. On several occasions during my trek through the tangled green thicket, I unintentionally bumped into the bloated atrocities, causing the gelatinous digestive fluid contained inside to slosh with sickening viscosity. Finally stepping out from underneath the knotted plant life, I found myself at length standing before a strategically placed wooden dais near the rounded end of the vaulted greenhouse. Atop the pedestal rested a single candle and an open book clearly marked as being a guest registry. Registry? I pondered. A registry for what? Upon closer examination of the text, the answer to my query was tragically imparted, written out in Matilda's own hand. In loving memory of my dear brother, Raiden, rest in peace. Oh no, I whispered sharply. Please, dear Lord, tell me it isn't so. No divine, audible answer was forthcoming, yet glancing up through filthy pane of glass and a veil of tears, the vision outside provided my anguished response. There, framed in cold, dispassionate metal outside the atrium was a burial underway, a funeral service for my childhood friend and confidant, Raiden Escher. Reluctantly, I picked up the quill and signed the guest book, then shuffled out through the open glass and metal doorway leading to the Escher family graveyard. Passing beyond the corroded threshold, stifling greenhouse humidity gave way to stagnant, bone-chilling wind, a hollow, disembodied voice coursing between the headstones, mournful and hauntingly prolonged, a death dirge for a dearly departed, lost soul. Slowly, respectfully, I approached the small gathering huddled around Raiden's casket and open, freshly dug grave, trying my best not to intrude upon the prevailing, unspoken sorrow. Matilda stood there with her back to me, motionless and dignified in a flowing black floor-length taffeta gown, unaware of my presence as yet, now in attendance, and accounted for to pay my last respects to her brother, my friend. Admittedly, I never actually knew of Raiden's passing, such were the immersive day-to-day -day obligations of my profession. Here, now, I had no way of estimating when the tragic event might have transpired. You see, even from my vantage point standing amid the field of Escher's long past, unquestionably Matilda was now considerably older than the last time I had seen her, supposedly moments ago, up a single flight of stairs. A young woman in her late twenties now, perhaps. Unquestionably, time was apparently still linear, even chronological, for the house of Escher and the residents therein. Beyond the house, the rules apparently no longer apply. I did not, so I thought, attend Raiden's funeral, and so it follows had no inclination of Matilda's loss. In this, her reality, now and ever on, she was alone, completely, totally alone. What span of lifetime had transpired for her from this dark event to the moment where unimaginable desperation had driven her to reach out to me for help. There was no conceivable way of knowing, no crude calculation to understand the sum of her collective isolation. 
Even as I stood there on the periphery of the gathering, I wanted to reach out to her, to console and protect her from the dark destiny of this accursed house of Escher. In some small way, I now understood why the house was being swallowed up. It was a physical manifestation of misery, a way to erase the Escher lineage literally from existence. This, I at once surmised, must not come to pass. It took another fleeting moment to consider the wealth, social stature and prosperity I had achieved and enjoyed since leaving this place, all of it pretty baubles that I had considered earmarks of my success. Only now did I realize what I had traded away, the day I made the unfortunate decision to forsake love for greed. If, in fact, I had it all to do over, I shall not shrink away from love this time. My mind resolute in the knowledge that history, at least here, was malleable, not chiseled like an epitaph upon a headstone, I stepped forward toward the grave. By now, pallbearers were lifting the casket, suspended on a series of leather straps, easing it slowly down, six feet under. As I reached out and gently placed my hand on her shoulder, Matilda turned and realized I was there. Alistair! She exclaimed. Oh, my dearest Alistair, thank you so much for coming. Your presence here now, it speaks volumes. I'm so sorry, Matilda. I can scarce believe that Raiden is gone. Please, my dear, let us adjourn in haste to the more inviting surroundings of the house. Raiden has been laid to rest. Tis cold and dark here in the graveyard. No place for you to linger in your fragile state, contending with your unimaginable grief. Raiden would want to be remembered within the places that nurtured and protected both of you, not as a lifeless shell given over to this cradle of death. Matilda was sobbing quietly as I placed my arm around her shoulder, for the most part uplifting her unsteady gait as we made our way back through the doorway to the atrium. Once inside, she paused near the podium the to thank heart, each of the scarce few souls who had been in attendance for Raiden's internment, the last of yes, which so I recognized as the family butler, you, Cedric Hastings, a devoted old steward to the Escher family, for even so far back as I could remember. Cedric, I said in earnest good nature, my God, man, how long has it been? Hastings took hold my outstretched hand and shook it. Bless my soul, he exclaimed. Alistair Fairfax, it is indeed good to see you, my boy. Your timing is, as you can plainly see, most fortuitous. Miss Matilda is beside herself with an all-consuming grief over the loss of Master Raiden. Surely your presence here now will significantly ease her pain. One can only hope, I responded, though in life the twins were all but completely inseparable. Without Raiden, a darkness does seem to have descended upon Matilda like a shroud. I shall endeavor to be of some assistance. A shroud indeed? Came the soft voice of Matilda, apparently eavesdropping on the conversation all along. I assure you, Alistair, the shroud has not yet fallen across my corruptible bag of bones. I am truly sorry, Matilda, my dear. I did not mean to imply that death, having recently taken your twin, is now actively stalking you. I must admit, however, I see in you a worrisome pallor, a sort of pale, unhealthy translucence that suggests a seeming lack of sleep or perhaps nutrition. I shall remain here at the House of Escher, a resident, at least for a time, 
and see to it that you do not have to bear this heartbreaking burden by yourself, quickly adding, no offense, Hastings. I only mean that Matilda and I have a shared history dating back to both of our very beginnings. The butler smiled slightly and patted me on the shoulder. None taken, he replied. Miss Escher has me to attend the day-by-day -day operation of the house, not to carry her through tragedy. I shall gladly relinquish the care and rejuvenation of her mind and body from this mournful state to you. With that, Hastings turned and walked away. As he departed, I recognized that he was the old man in question, the one I had witnessed traversing the stairways of the house twice before. While I watched Hastings slowly shuffle back through the length of the greenhouse, I noticed, to my dismay, that the vegetation was no longer green. Over the short span of time it took to bury Raiden, every last one of the plants that had once formed the dense, tangled thicket were now dead. Every last one. Most unsettling were the remnants of the pitcher plants, shriveled black pouches dangling from decaying stems, their collective digestional fluids splattered here and there across the floor, a thick rancid jelly dotted with the partially digested corpses of flies, beetles and gelatinous dismembered spiders. It was as if a significant portion of the house and all life encased therein had literally perished along with Raiden. I had the distinct impression that the very walls of the house were somehow made up of the same tissue as the Eshers themselves, flesh instead of masonry, bone instead of wood and nail, bloodline keeping it all alive for so, so long. Until this, Matilda the last Escher. Thus, I conjectured, might well explain the floundering condition of the house as seen in its final death throes. Had I arrived here to witness the future? If so, why had I encountered the child form of Matilda upon entrance to the attic? Without exception, events have transpired in perfect chronology ever since, albeit like I were flipping to random pages of a novel and missing the untold story in between. Lost entirely in my meandering contemplations, I failed to realize I was once again standing alone in the house, my gaze fixed down yet another bizarre flight of off-kilter stairs. Even though I seemed to be approaching the ground floor, there was, as yet, no evidence of standing water below. On the contrary, the house and all of its many trappings appeared to be well maintained in the lower recesses, in sharp contrast to blatant disregard exhibited here on the tortured plain where I was standing. And so I trudged onward, every successive time-worn step on the way down, appearing to become somehow restored to original stateliness with each tentative footfall. Upon reaching the landing, I noticed a pleasing fragrance wafting in through an open window nearby. As it had been upstairs at the moment I first spotted Matilda and her horse, warm sunlight filtered through gently rippling lace curtains, carrying with it a much-needed restorative energy to these aged halls. I stepped up to the window and slowly brushed the shears aside, revealing that the grounds beyond were now thankfully well manicured, as in days gone by blue toad flax and thimbleweed, downy asters, scarlet bergamot, 
a veritable rainbow of color interspersed between a waving green plateau of tall grasses stretched out to the tree line, bold and unfettered by even the slightest hint of decay. And though I suppose that the combined odor of this veritable carpet of flowers could indeed be the source, my nostrils recognized a faint familiarity that I for some reason knew did not originate from any of the fragrant plant life. Throwing open the pair of heavy French doors at the end of the foyer, I stepped outside and inhaled deeply, eager to identify the luxurious odor that permeated to the core of my very being drawing me into the magnificence of the day. The warm breeze that coursed gently across my face teased me on into the vast meadow and out from beneath the shadow of the house. A jet-black raven glided silently across the sky overhead, and I grinned, amused by the thought that this time, at least, Matilda's cherished teddy, Mr. Poe, was now safely squirreled away within the protective confines of a cedar chest, never more threatened with inflicted bodily harm. Odd, I thought to myself, how on earth could I possibly know that? As if providing an answer to my query, the raven squawked down at me and then fluttered its way out of sight above the distant treetops. It was then that I finally discovered the source of the insistent aroma. Along the ridge that frames the property on all sides of the meadow was my lovely Matilda, walking slowly down the path that led out into this lush plain of flowers, flitting butterflies and tall grass. The fragrance had been her perfume all along, unique to all others, a delicate blending of lavender, chamomile and ginger, precisely measured by her own hand to combine in delightful medley with her own bodily essence. When she glanced down in my direction and noticed me watching, she smiled warmly and waved. The overwhelming beauty of the moment is, and will forever be, etched within the deepest recesses of my heart and mind. My God, I voiced aloud, you are the absolute personification of loveliness. Blushing, Matilda coyly turned this way and that, as if to feign confusion over who or what I was referring to. You're just in love, she exclaimed as she strolled her way across to where I stood, her glittering burgundy gown flowing provocatively around her legs, revealing a fleeting glimpse of stocking as she strutted the underlying unmentionables. Mrs. Fairfax, I presume, I stated breathlessly. Indeed, Mr. Fairfax, I take it you came looking for me with something on your, shall we say, less than virtuous mind? Who me? I replied innocently. Not at all. No, no, I simply stepped outside to admire the recent restorations to the house. Tis quite stately now, do you not agree? I turned away from her then and extended my arms in a wide, sweeping arc to showcase the fine craftsmanship. Matilda walked up behind me and wrapped her arms around my waist, then proceeded to nibble playfully on my earlobe. Yes, Alistair, um... She whispered sharply. It is quite luxurious. Now be a dear and show me, if you will, the interior, more specifically, I should fancy, um, how shall I say, in a guided tour of the master bedroom. She blew a little puff of her hot breath into my ear and then skipped up onto the porch, her loose curls bouncing and swirling around her shoulders. 
In one final gesture of stimulating allure, Matilda peeked out from behind one of the double doors and giggled, <laughs> then held out her hand with index finger extended, motioning for me to come and get her, so to speak. Of course I obliged, trotting after her with a high degree of mounting anticipation. Then, to my dismay and considerable frustration, I discovered that she was nowhere to be found as I pulled open the door. Not that I'd have had even the slightest inkling of where I might commence a search. This time, the myriad flights of trackless stairs led nowhere I wished to go. Certainly not, I had the uncanny sense to my precious Matilda. Frantically, I scanned the inward reaches of the house to no avail. Then, from somewhere not far below, I made out the distinct sound of a door opening, followed by echoing footsteps. Leaning out over the balustrade, I then noted the familiar rattle of an outer door closing quietly, aligned beneath me on yet another oddly angled balcony, situated on the underside of this one. I know not who it was that had taken their leave, only that whosoever it had been was in the company of Hastings, our trusted manservant. Standing motionless with his head bowed outside of what I finally identified as the doorway to the master bedroom, I noticed that he was crying, his palm clenched tightly across his eyes as he quietly sobbed to himself. Because of the inverted orientation of his unique reality, a very strange thing happened. A tear fell from his cheek, and from my point of view, literally floated, no, fell up to me, ultimately spattering across the flesh of my outstretched wrist. I inhaled sharply, reacting to the odd occurrence, and Hastings uncovered his eyes, looking down, or up as it were. Our eyes met. Trying to compose himself, the steward pulled a handkerchief from his breast pocket and dabbed the corners of his eyes. Master Fairfax, please, you must come at once. It is only a matter of moments now. Without giving it so much as a second thought, I hurled myself over the handrail and quickly caught hold of its mirror image counterpart next to where Hastings was standing. Whatever the urgency of his words, the act in and of itself had literally turned my world upside down. Little did I know how true this was, metaphorically speaking. Apparently, the brazened act must have appeared strangely commonplace to Hastings, as he then placed his gloved hand upon my shoulder and walked with me to the bedroom door. Patting me reassuringly on the back, he let go, then, respectfully shrinking into the shadows as I entered with as much collective gallantry as I could muster on the spur of the moment. As it was with the raven, Mr. Poe, and the cedar chest, I somehow already knew the unspeakable truth that I was about to experience, the singular event that would chart the course of my life forevermore. Matilda was ill, in fact has been ill for many, many months. I knew in my heart of hearts that this was to be the last time I would be with her in this life. I managed a slight smile as I sat down on the bed next to her, gently grasping her hand between my own. Her skin was frightfully cold, and that fact upset me greatly, though I still managed to put on the bravest face I could muster and tried my absolute best not to let it show. Her features were now reportedly gaunt and cadaverous as our family physician had described them. However, I vehemently refused to believe it, only choosing to see her beauty, 
a quality that transcended far beyond her physical appearance. Matilda, my love, I am here. I saw her eyelids flutter almost imperceptibly and then slowly open, revealing the weary yet still radiant jewels of her eyes underneath. You need not look upon me if it is too troubling, she said weakly. Would that I could depart from you with dignity and grace, not, I dare say, like this. I held her hand to my lips and kissed it gently. As for your image, I replied, it is forever etched in my mind's eye. You will never be anything but ravishing. Matilda scoffed disbelievingly. Ravishing, indeed. Kind-hearted to the last, then, is it? What started as a slight chuckle of amusement ended sorrowfully as a ragged cough. It took a long moment for her to regain her composure, then finally she said, Remember me always, Alistair. This failing jar of clay must now return to the dust, yet in you I shall live on. That thought alone comforts me, no less than your coming to the house of Escher did so very long ago. Thank you for sharing your life with me. Dearest Matilda, I said emphatically, no thanks are in order, none. There are no regrets, save the fact that you are leaving me far, far too soon. I should have very much enjoyed spending my twilight years with you as well. You'd have been a grand old lady. That I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Having experienced what life would be like, with and without you, has given me a perspective of time like no other. Climbing through that attic window changed my life. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, Alistair. She responded. When will you finally get it through that thick skull of yours? I sent no letter of invitation, no plea for help. The subject had come up on numerous occasions across the ensuing years, but even now I was still no less incredulous. How then could I have possibly known of your condition? Matilda shook her head. I know not how. She groaned. I only know that I would most certainly remember having done so. Although, she stated sharply, if by chance I were to pen such a letter, perhaps I should make haste and get on with it, my love. Time is short. Without delay, I quickly scanned the room, noting the presence of quill, inkwell, and parchment, fortuitously resting near a lighted candle upon the bedside table. Indeed, precious Matilda, get on with it. You shall. I have very little recollection of her passing, only that it was peaceful, and that it took place in my arms, a last embrace before oblivion. Beyond that point, only vague notions, stumbling out of the room, Hastings holding me up as I sobbed uncontrollably for seemingly endless untold hours, carelessly stumbling down one final staircase to find myself standing alongside her coffin tragic and yet overwhelmingly tranquil and serene. The ornate vases that had once graced the many unique planes of existence throughout the House of Escher were all here now, gathered together and brimming with wildflowers from the surrounding meadow. Displayed prominently within the satin-lined lid of her casket was a tintype likeness, the three of us as children, Matilda, Raiden, and myself. Indeed, I said aloud, only one item amiss. From under my arm, I produced Mr. Poe and carefully tucked him beneath her delicately folded hands.
The house and all of the fine trappings situated therein are now yours, Hastings. Do with them as you will. That which was important to me can no longer be found lingering here. The house, now merely an empty shell like those buried beside and beneath, are only fragments of the long past, their crumbling collective essence cast off in the end. What remains is memory, and I do not wish to remember them in the throes of death. Farewell, old friend. We shook hands, and then just before climbing up into the saddle, I reached into the breast pocket of my riding coat and produced an envelope, sealed in wax and stamped with the Escher family crest. One last bit of business, Hastings, if you would be so kind. Of course, Master Fairfax, anything at all. Handing him the envelope, I instructed, see to it that this is sent along at your earliest convenience, would you please? The old man glanced at the mailing address through his substantial reading glasses and then pointed a withered index finger at it. Beg pardon, sir, he said, studying the item in detail. But this mailing is addressed to you, and bless my soul, appears to have been written by Miss Matilda. Indeed, I confirmed as I mounted my horse. Just see that it is delivered, old friend. An unusual request, Master Fairfax, to be sure, he said. If I might ask, why not simply take the correspondence with you, unseal the contents en route, or promptly upon your arrival? No, Hastings, I responded. Somehow I have, how shall I say, a sinking feeling it will arrive just in time. Very good, sir. Yes, indeed, I replied. Very, very good. Fear not, Master Fairfax, it shall be done. Thank you, Hastings, I responded, lightly flicking the reins. Then, as my trusted mare started clomping her way out across the meadow, I heard Hastings call out after me. Excuse me, sir, but I must ask. Are you somehow already privy to the message that is concealed herein? Or is it as yet a mystery? Without so much as a sideways glance, I answered, The mystery is how it reached me in time, my good man. As for the content, tis nothing less than an invitation to a full life, I should think. And, I concluded, perhaps a dire warning to shore up that which was teetering on the brink, preventing the fall of the house of Escher. No further comment here, except to say that life is unpredictable. Decisions made along the way? The outcome is anybody's guess, nudged a little this way and a little that by a breath, a string of words carrying with them the power to upend destiny, for better or for worse. All life, a byproduct of thin air. Episode 23 of the Thin Air podcast anthology, The Fall of the House of Escher, was written, produced, directed, narrated, and told by R.J. Lonsdale. The voice of Alistair Fairfax was performed by Aaron Marlowe. The voice of Little Miss Matilda Escher was performed by Mary Whitehall, preteen Matilda by Elaine Wilcott, and adult Matilda by Donna Roy. The voice of Cedric Hastings was performed by Charles Hawthorne. Audio production for this Thin Air episode by R.J. Lonsdale of Flyby Studios. Music compositions used in this episode include Martian Cowboy by Kevin MacLeod, She Moved Mountains, Childhood, Static, Soar, Theory of Machines and Life Is by Scott Buckley, 
this heart is wounded but still beating and light up your world by Ari Forda, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. This has been an R.J. Lonsdale, Flyby Studios presentation.